Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Hello, and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Each week, we bring you the best news, views, and interviews with the people and companies that are changing the world of health tech in the UK and beyond. I want to say thank you to everyone that's listening live on UK Health Radio. I want to say thank you to everyone that's listening on Spotify. And I want to say thank you to everyone that's watching on YouTube. So we've got now well over a thousand subscribers, um, you know, and, and we're doing really well across all the platforms. So thank you very much to everyone, everyone there. Um, I also want to say thanks to my company, PopDoc, who have partnered with this show to make this show possible. We have just received our CA marking certification for our first um, lipid test, smartphone-based lipid test, which is very exciting. And we've recently won a Novartis Award, um, which is called the Novartis Heart Health Catalyst. So all very exciting, everything at PopDoc. Thank you very much there. So today is a first for the show. We've got someone from a uh, the, the leading industry body of, um, of health technology in the UK, which is the Association of British Health Tech Industry. Um, we've not had anyone from an industry body on the show before, so it's going to be really exciting to get a very unique perspective across the whole industry. Obviously, we are called the Health Tech Hour, so someone from the Health Tech Industry Association seems highly relevant um, in terms of subject matter. So I just want to welcome Richard Phillips, who's the Strategy Director at the ABHI, so the Association of British Health Tech Industry, to the show. Welcome, Richard. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for inviting us, Steve. It's great to be here. And congratulations on your your C your CA marking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah we'd like to speak to you about that at some point. Actually, I'm sure a lot of our members would uh, be interested in your experiences. Yeah, well, we 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 are we we are a member in waiting of the ABHI. Put it that way. We've got to get to it. So, um, but again, post, I get it. yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, but it's really great to have you on. And I think you were definitely one of the people that we wanted to have on the show um, to provide kind of unique industry perspective on things because trade industry bodies have a unique perspective kind of deliberately um, on that in the sense that they represent such a broad church right because health technology is an extremely broad church encompasses all kinds of different things you know from syringes up to you know x-ray scanners and you know everything in between so how would you just to start with just to bring everyone onto the same kind of bit of paper what would what is the mission of the ABHI? Well, I mean, and you've described the sector really well, Steve, actually, it is incredibly, incredibly diverse. Um, you call it a broad church. Uh, I was actually um, helping the DIT out, the Department for International Trade out earlier in the week at a, uh, at a conference, a global market access conference. They have people all over the globe helping companies like yours and others uh, export uh, literally around the world. There were people from, from all all corners of the globe. Uh, I describe the sector as a basket case. Uh, versus <laughs> um, okay, slightly less. Yeah, people people often look at look at us and think our oh, pharmaceuticals are the same as pharmaceuticals, uh, yeah. and we're absolutely not. It is that it's that incredibly diverse range of products. Um, and uh, for people you know, listening, maybe not as familiar, you you'll think about. I always used to say when people ask me, what is the health tech all about? So we define health tech as medical devices, diagnostics, right. like stuff, including the stuff you're talking about, the pee and the stick, pee and the pot stuff, um, lipid tests, which we've all had, uh, the, um, the COVID test we grow to know and love, all that kind of stuff, plus the big imaging, uh, which you mentioned as well as big machines you get wheeled into, you wouldn't want to make noises you want to hear on an aircraft. 
that's all part of health tech. That was down the people used to say, what is it all about? I say, Holby City. I didn't think of another thing now because it's stopped, hasn't it, Holby? But yeah. There is kit. Even the drugs uh, are given through kit. And yeah. So if you think of everyone listening to this, I hope the vast majority will have been able to have their COVID vaccination. And you look at a COVID vaccination uh, programme, uh, the vaccines and medicine, it's hard not to say the star of the show of vaccination programme isn't the medicine, because it is. But the soloist is nothing without the orchestra. And that, that vaccine was delivered in a, in a glass vial, which is a medical device. It's given through a needle and syringe, medical devices. person given it, you would have been dripping in PPE, medical devices. So there's all of that. So, so our, our aim is to make sure people can get appropriate access to high-quality health technology, as we would define it. And we do that in a number of ways, representing uh, our industry. Probably the most important thing we do is we act as an important interlocutor. Uh, between industry and government. So pandemic, obviously, it's hard not to talk about the pandemic. But if we look back the early days of, of the pandemic... Yeah, what, um, what, that's a great point. What, at what point did you guys as a body kind of become either aware or involved in those discussions right at the beginning? Pretty much immediately, uh, Steve. And, you, and actually, this was industry associations across, across the board. I think we all said the pandemic did two things after Brexit... The referendum, the pandemic brought experts and industry back into fashion. Who are the right. people that knew the stuff that could help us and who are the people that could deliver the technology? Yeah. So pretty much from the from the outset. So in the very, very early days, we got um, we got involved in the ventilator challenge. Uh, one of my colleagues was on the team that looked at whole regulatory makeup for that fascinating piece of work because People found out you can't, it's not that easy just to start making, stop stop building motor cars no. or vacuum cleaners or aeroplanes to start making ventilators. Very, very different. So we had a big input in the uh, in the ventilator um, stuff from the word go. Um, PPE challenge, of course, but all all technologies. How do you how do you keep how do you keep the how do you keep the country running? So there's big discussions on trade, where are the blockages in the world, where are things getting stuck, how do we get around that? Big issues come up straight away. I mean, you know, everything ran out. And one of the things I don't think any of us realise is to what extent goods are moved around the globe on aeroplanes in, yeah. in holes of passenger yeah. aircraft. That's why you can't take any baggage on aeroplanes. It's full right. of uh, it's full of stuff in the right. hold. So we had to overcome all that. It was really, really, really kind of interesting work. And we worked right the way through with the pandemic. And actually, um, I think... All industry sectors would say this as well. We had a tremendous engagement with government. We probably had more ministerial engagement in that 18 months, two years than we had in the previous decade, possibly. But um, is that presumably, though, that's not like it's it's kind of a shame that it took a global pandemic to, you know, get to that point. I would assume that you're, well, I mean, well, yeah, uh, to be f- actually Brexit did us a bit of a favour because okay. we'd stress tested our supply chain resilience almost to the point of destruction oh, okay. uh, with, with cool. so many cliff edges. We got really good at making sure we we had a, we, our supply chains were intact and, you know, everybody was telling you, no one's supposed to stockpile, hospitals not supposed to stockpile. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the board of a hospital. And, yeah, we did stockpile, but we made sure we weren't going to run out. If yeah. we hit one of those, uh, if we hit one of those Brexit pledges. So right. we, it, it was actually a good exercise in preparation and the level of detail that people went into across government to prepare for those uh, anticipated or, or feared Brexit cliff edges probably served us quite well in the pandemic. 
and, and the fact we also had, I mean, they've had a bad rap, I think, uh, from some parts of the media, but we have a really good, strong uh, network, distribution network. You know, people that can source stock, source good quality stock, and, yeah. and deliver and deliver it to the NHS for the benefit of patients and also healthcare professionals. A lot of that stuff was protected. I mean, I, 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 to your point at the beginning of the show, you know, I think that in, in effect, almost everything that you come into contact with when you enter a hospital is a medical device. Yeah. is a piece of health technology if you're unfortunate enough to have to go into hospital once you move past you know once you move past reception into a ward or into a you know screening room or whatever every single piece in there is a part of the health technology ecosystem and would almost certainly qualify as some kind of medical device and i think people to your point around it's not that easy to suddenly spin up making medical grade ventilators right like medical devices there's a there's a huge amount of rigor and regulatory oversight and documentation and testing and verification and validation that has to happen and should happen before any single device goes onto the market so it there there isn't a very easy way to spin this stuff up particularly quickly right absolutely right i mean and the quality standards are uh, are very very high and um, some some companies we work with obviously won't name them but People say, well, we'll never buy products from them again because they've had no quality management systems. Colleagues yeah. in the aircraft injury industry actually were amazed about the quality standards that even small, small... Uh, yeah, well, it's, it, 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 so it, you know this yourself, Steve. Yeah, I mean, we're ISO 13485. It was one of the first things that we did. Um, ISO 13485 registered. For those of you that aren't quality management system aficionados, is, is basically the internationally recognised certification, audited certification of what's called a quality management system, which, which in effect is a step-by-step -step, uh, description, prescription around how you develop products to the highest quality within your company. And effectively is the Bible that everyone in that company has to follow about how to run the company. It's extremely detailed. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's right too. I mean, well, I, we may well get on and talk about some of the finer points of regulation, but you know, regulation in any sector is to is there to protect consumers and industry there's a, there's a sort of misconception that our industry wants light touch soft regulation that's simply not the case you know people choose to work in our industry for a reason it's by and large because they want to help people and you know i've always believed there's a point which everybody we interact with whether they're you know scientists they're doctors the hospital administrators you know the guys out there selling the kit in hospitals their clinical support people We've all, people like myself in industry bodies, we've all got different things to do every day. But if we get it right, there'll be an overlap and that point will be the overlap at which people get access to high quality, appropriate access to high quality, safe, as safe as it can be. And that's that's probably worth the discussion. Okay, yeah. Because one of the ways devices have been regulated traditionally under the European system is this balance, this risk and benefit. And it's a discussion we never want to have. Uh, what are the risks associated with any intervention? Any medical intervention is not free from risk, uh, but we don't always want to have that discussion, particularly when we're sick. Uh, we want to go to, to, to get fixed quickly, safely, pain-free, without any consequences of what are the trade-offs in what happens. Yeah. I and think I sometimes when people get worked up about regulation, is, is it fit for purpose? They don't want to have that sort of uh, honest honest conversation about okay we need to understand the risks as well as the benefits 
and and actually and and the the level of data you need to provide, as you will know, Steve, for uh, to, to be certified for a medical device does depend certainly the European system on the level of risk presented by that device. Yeah, and I think that that's fair enough, right? Like if you you know on the one hand you have a, a you know a thermometer, for example, that doesn't carry as much medical risk as a spinal implant for, for example and those things should not be treated the same yeah quite evidently and i don't think anyone would really argue different or should argue different um that that being said the, the thing that i think a lot of people you know we're gonna i don't want to turn the whole show into a debate into a discussion around regulations but what i think people don't necessarily realize is that the, the development of a medical device starts with understanding how the user will use it, what the user will use it for. And you build your requirements and your design and your verification all the way back from the beginning around how do I think or we think the user will use this? What are their requirements? So the requirement of a thermometer is, well, they might stick it in their mouth and leave it there for five minutes and the glass need not break and whatever it, whatever it is. Whereas the user requirements associated with the spinal implant are going to be unbelievably extensive. Yeah, dead right, Steve. And we're engineers, and the and people always worry about C marking. Well, what does that mean? Well, actually, C mark tells you it, it uh, it'll do no harm, and it does what it says on the tin. But the level of evidence you need does depend uh, yeah. on that as well. So and it should do. And it, and yeah, it should absolutely. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like a really good example is, is the COVID lateral flow test, right? So like you know, Innova and, and that whole crew of, of, of those people, like obviously they had their clinical data that said it was, you know, 150% accurate or whatever it was that their clinical data said. But in reality, and when they were tested at Porton Down and things like that, it came back and they were like, in practice, it was sort of 70, 75%. But the government made a risk benefit analysis, which was that actually on the whole, we're prepared to take the lower accuracy for the massive, massive benefit of access to testing and affordability of testing because we fundamentally cannot process all of those tests through the laboratory system, but we still need that to happen because of the, if we don't test people and we have this virus uncontrolled in the, in, in the ecosystem, deaths will be significantly higher. So they took that trade-off knowingly. Exactly the trade-off we were talking about, Steve, and then your and, and your, your appetite for risk will depend, will, will switch as well, with it, depending on, on what situation you're in and what's, uh, and what your, in, uh, um, your 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 condition might be. I mean, if, if you've got an intro in, in, in growing toenail, your appetite for the risk of a uh, of a treatment would be would be a lot uh, less than it would be if you had late stage pancreatic cancer. Then, when you frankly wouldn't be too worried about the side effects of any treatment that was offered to you. Yeah, and I think um, so. You know, known a number of people in the drug discovery space, and and I didn't realise until I started speaking to them that a lot of the experimental drugs in that space are tested on people in exactly that situation where they are in that end of life situation and, and unfortunately they are in a terminal situation and so they're like yeah sure there's very little downside to me in having a go at this whereas you can't test it on someone that's in stage one because that isn't the right thing to do um so what's your what's your view on this idea that regulation stifles innovation well it it, it shouldn't uh, so you, you need a balance uh, having said that we are there regulations there to protect consumers and um, bad regulation 
it's not good regulation to deny people timely access access to uh, devices um, uh, when you know when they're, when they're when they're indicated. And there've been examples of this in the past uh, all over all over the world of where regulators have been very very slow. Uh, and the big one, actually, the one that I remember very early in my my career uh, was implantable cardioverter defibrillators. So these things that people don't know, they're described as the the ER room, I hate the ER room, but ER room in your chest. Is that a pacemaker? No. It's Well, it looks like a pacemaker. If you or I look to do it, it's not like a pacemaker. It looks okay. like a pacemaker. It's implanted in some way, but it sits it sits inside your, uh, inside your chest, bleeds on your heart. If you're at risk from a cardiac arrhythmia, so an abnormal heart rhythm, right. uh, if you go into a certain type of uh, uh, abnormal heart rhythm, um, particular fibrillation, You'll die unless it's corrected. And the only way to correct it is is by uh, is by is by electric electricity. So the paddles you see on on the on Holby City and yeah. all the movies, um, it's an it's an internal version of one of those. Um, so it sits there, it monitors your heart uh, twenty four hours a day. Uh, and if you go into a shockable uh, cardiac uh, arrhythmia, it will deliver a shock there and then. So those devices were available in Europe a long time before they were available in. United States. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Nagging pain. We at Alka-Cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. Algacells, part of a network of 50 Regenex clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. Algacells, life is more beautiful with less pain. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. And why was that? Uh, well, this is this has been uh, this, this represents a really interesting shift in how people have thought about regulation. Regulation in the US was considered for most of my career, and I've been in devices since '97. This sort of space a little bit before that. Regulation in the US was considered to be very costly, very very slow, very very cumbersome. And um, the EU has seemed to be a little bit more sort of more responsive, quicker. Um, there is, and but, but regulation evolves, and the the medical, the current medical device directives are known as were, uh, were came out in the early nineteen nineties. Uh, they yeah. serve patients well. They allow patients access to timely to timely interventions like ICDs, implantable cardioverter defibrillators. And um, so, European patients, uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of lives, were probably saved by ICDs versus uh, other people that took a more conservative approach to to um to regulation so it's about getting that balance right um, yeah 
medical device directed in Europe are now being have now been uh, uh, changed. Uh, they are, it's fair to say they are probably it is a more burdensome and cumbersome uh, process than it was at one point. That's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing, but it's about getting the balance right. At the same time, the US is taking a slightly different view. The FDA is taking a slightly different view. It said, okay, uh, we recognize in the past we were slow. Our patients were slow at getting access to, uh, to, to proven technologies. So the FDA, over the course of probably the last Food and Drug Administration, the, the regulator in the US, over the past, course of the past six, seven, eight years or so, has kind of reinvented itself. It's become very innovation friendly. It's, it set itself metrics to be the first market in the world to, to, to access certain innovations. Okay, I didn't time, know that. Like, what stuff does it want to be the first in? Uh, it'll look, if you look at uh, various kind of your intervention, my, my early background was interventional cardiology. Now, okay. I always thought at that time, intervention in the vascular tree, you can use the same kind of looking technologies uh, that you're using in the coronary arteries, you can use them in any bit of the vascular tree. And okay. going all over the body, those kind of things. As we, I'm the, the interesting thing about devices, probably more so than um, pharmaceuticals, is sort of the pace is they're iterative. So, yeah, engineers, we build a device that can yeah. help. Well, that's 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 exactly what that's exactly where we think, and particularly the more devices that include software, which is obviously has a the, the more devices that include software in terms of their diagnostic has an unbelievable capacity to scale and innovate and iterate and improve, right? Yeah, yeah so I'm an ICD, we were talking about ICD, an ICD has got actually diagnostic in it, it's monitoring your heart, it's a, yeah. it, it, it's a real-time monitor. Um, so the, the, the switch now, uh, just to finish that point, the switch now is that um, with what's happening in the US, the Europe is, is being seen as a less favorable place for renovation. And the new regulations are they are they are more they are do you more mean, demanding. Do you mean do you mean Europe outside of the UK or do you mean Europe including the UK? Like what are we what well, are we doing? Well, what well, are we the, saying these days? What do we at say? The moment, at the moment, regulatory wise, European regulation is our regulation. Okay, you've got a CA mark a lot of Yeah, exactly. It's a, they just took the regulations over wholesale yeah. pretty much. A lot of people go that route. And the demands placed on, on companies and regulators with the new MDR medical yeah. device regulation is uh, is and that includes you know your kind of stuff in vitro diagnostic mm. as well they ivd stands for in vitro uh in vitro diagnostic medical device yeah um, that 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 because it's got more burdens to the extent that regulators are pulled out of that market so um there is a system whereby your device is effectively approved by a thing called a notified body yeah uh, and they're, they're independent organizations at one time, there were 80, 90 plus across Europe. Uh, we've seen that plummet down to um, maybe 40 or so at the moment um, who are able to do that just because it's so difficult. That puts a lot of pressure on, on innovators to get their products regulated. So now they're beginning to think, well, hang on a minute. Why wouldn't we look at uh, somewhere else where uh, it's easier to get approvals? There isn't that constraint on capacity. And there's a shortage of regulators all over the world. Shortage of doctors, yeah, shortage of, shortage of regulators and people listed. It's a fantastic career. You'll never be out of a job as a, as a competent regulatory affairs professional. That's when you start climbing the ladder, regulatory strategies are really, really fascinating part of the world. Yeah. So that, then we then have a balance of 
we're, we're, as an innovator, where I'm going to go. And we're hearing a lot from UK-based innovators, probably slightly further down the line than where you are, Steve, that, okay, do we want to go into Europe? It's slow. We're, as a small company, particularly, it's difficult for us to get regulation. Or do we go to the US? US, US regulatory affairs professionals will tell you, the guys, consultants will tell you, they spent the first half of their career teaching people how to get city marks so they can get into Europe. They're now spending their career telling people how to get through FDA regulation. Yeah, I mean, our, our, um, our FDA documentation is already under review. So we're already, I mean, we're going UK, US for exactly that reason. It's just, it's just there's, there's such a layer of complexity associated with Europe. I mean, each, each market is different. Obviously, even though you have a CE mark, you still have to approach each market completely differently. You know, and so it's it's just um it's sort of very complex. Whereas the US is obviously one homogenous market, one regulatory authority that you have to deal with, and and like you say, they're actually pretty proactive. So how how does that flow back into this this vision or this kind of vision that the well certainly under the Boris Johnson government during the pandemic and post pandemic, this vision of sort of Britain as sort of life sciences, medical technology, health technology, innovation flagship country. Like, how, how do you view, what, what's your view on that sort of vision that, well, I think probably people could probably agree that that's sort of what they would like us to perceive from the media, particularly post-pandemic. But what's your kind of professional view on that? So let's take the regulatory aspect of that first and then maybe maybe go across. Because we've got, we're at an interesting point in our history now, aren't we, mm-hmm. um, with, with Brexit. We, we are in a position where our approach to regulation offers uh, enormous opportunities. So um, the number of companies that are um, that will manufacture in the UK only for the NHS market is vanishingly small, probably hardly any in our books, if any. So they're going to look at, uh, they're going to, traditionally they would always go for a mark first, go for a mark, get you to UK, get you to Europe, and then, then think elsewhere. So at the moment now, we've got to make a decision. We need to come up with our own sovereign regulations. If they are, they are additional additive to anything else of other markets, the big European market on our doorstep, or the massive market in the US. Um, that is going to detract from this as a favourable place to, uh, to to do. Yeah, I can't see. I, they can't. If they do that, then it's going to be there'd be a bit. If they make it harder to get a device regulated in the UK than the US or the EU, then that's going to be a, a road to nowhere. That think. is a problem. At the moment, we're taking this really interesting view at the moment. Now, bear in mind, regulation is there to protect, uh, protect consumers, protect yeah. patients. If you look at the content of regulation, it's 80, 85%. So you know this, you're doing your, your regulation, yeah. you've done your UK, European stuff. And um, the content is 80, 85%. What changes is the process, right? So, and if you quite rightly identified, you have a very different experience in different European countries, even though you've got this true mutual recognition system. So, um, at the moment, so if you would say, well, MDR is probably, in terms of content to protect consumers, it's probably the gold standard. Right? So at the moment, we're accepting unilaterally accepting. If you've got a C mark, you, you will unilaterally accept your product into the UK market. Well, we're we're a position now by the another things things you never thought you hear yourself say by the free freedoms afforded to us by Brexit, we can choose which who we align with, whose 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 regulation we will unilaterally accept. We're currently mm-hmm. accepting the CE marking. Why would you make it? Why would we not take that more permanently? This is something that the Institute of Economic Affairs put out. That Jacob Rees-Mogg actually said was a good from a trade perspective. Jacob Rees-Mogg said that it, we should take the EU regulation on medical devices. 
Yeah, well, yeah, well, well, it's not just medical device, it's CE marking. So if you look around... Oh, CE marking, so he's, so he, oh, wow, he said we should accept everything CE mark. Yeah, and, it, and that also facilitates trade, but why not Why not look at other, other, other trusted jurisdictions as well, so like the US, okay? Some companies don't have a regulator like the MHRA, some countries. They tend to be developing countries with nothing much in the way of indigenous uh, regulation. Um, they... Um, uh, indigenous uh, health tech industry, but they'll they'll look they'll do exactly that. They'll say, okay, you've got CE, you've got FDA, you've been approved in Singapore, and um, then we, we will accept your your product onto our market with a simple registration process. So that as the more I think about that, is the, the I can't think of any other way we're absolutely able to guarantee continued product supply, particularly if people start beginning to to look away from Europe. We don't need to hang ourselves on. The, the, yeah on Europe to the extent we have done, we can look globally. And that is a real opportunity for us. Whilst, of course, making sure the products that we get as patients are, are, are safe. That's a regulatory element of that vision. The other bit of the vision is the is the back end of it. The bit I guarantee you're struggling with at the moment, Steve, is adoption spread. Um, the UK is not always seen as the best place to do that. Mm. It tends to be a difficult market. Um, so... We need to focus on that bit. We talk about, we have a life sciences vision, which talks about building on our science base and making the NHS the driver of innovation in our country, because it's a huge employer and, uh, and all the economic output associated with that, but also create an outstanding business environment for, 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 for yeah. the, the life sciences sector. And we don't yeah. always do that practically because this is not the easiest market to access. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, sample of one and you know we're based in Cambridge and, and, and you know it's obviously it's a huge cluster for life sciences and, and health technology and there are others you know there's Scotland's doing fantastically well and Bristol and Oxford and you know there's lots of really great stuff coming in um, I think the um, what I think that the UK government needs to try and figure out I, I don't I also think that there's a huge amount of innovation coming out of academia as well in this country you know so I think the actual intellectualism of the innovations is, is okay, you know. Um, I think it's more, a bit like you say, the support of that moving into commercially viable businesses and that then being supported adequately, um, you know, whether that's with investment funding, whether that's with research funding, whether it's with, you know, routes into the NHS. I mean, I think the NHS historically you know over the last 10 or 15 years has really recognized that that pathway for innovators is hard but but it's also really hard to change that what yeah. it, 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 it's easy to identify problems in the nhs but it's significantly harder to do anything about them so i don't think it's a lack of will i think it's more of a it's just a big it's a big system you know to try and to try and adjust yeah I and mean, there's an imbalance that the the, the, the there are you know this there are 15 organizations called academic health science networks that come oh in. yeah um in fact I'm, we're in belfast next week talking about how to create something like that for northern ireland cool. and they, they had a great slide a penny farthing basically yes yeah. uh, in the real world you take a big company any big in any big company in other industry and um, the small wheel of the penny, penny farthing is the amount of money they spend on r d the big wheel is the amount of money they spend on adoption and spread right. the nhs is the way around so I think we kind of, in some ways, the, the, the basic clinical research is, is the easy bit, the adoption spread, because you've got to change pathways. 
uh, is the difficult bit. Um, so that, and and also we're good at that early bit as well. I mean, you're speaking from Cambridge. I mean, no one no one on the planet can can bet Cambridge for basic science. But no. so that's how we possibly need to think about our um, our, 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 our developing healthy care system. And again, we've got a, we think I think we've got a, an opportunity with this move to integrated care. So you talk about you know, having to break down so many barriers. One of the biggest but most significant barriers and consistent barriers um, was this ability where you you invest in one part of the system. So you invent you you invest in your technology, Steve. Uh, lipid monitoring is the best thing because uh, the benefit is going to be realised further down in the system with people where people aren't presenting. To yeah. be, um, uh, in a hospital, but there are no financial linkages between the people paying for your test and the people receiving the benefit. Yeah, it's a yeah. yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, there's a classic, and this it's like the classic Freakonomics of the NHS, isn't it? It's sort of like everyone can agree that something's a good idea, but no one quite knows where that money will come from because even though it is a good idea, conceptually, no one can actually work out the risk, the cost-benefit analysis on their kind of balance sheet, right? Yeah. Like a classic one I heard was around like urine testing, like UTI testing in care homes. So UTIs are one of the single biggest reasons people Massive. move from a care home into a hospital, okay? Yeah. But when they don't need to be, that's when it. they don't need to be. So, but who's going to pay for routine UTI testing in care homes? Well, the care homes are run privately and they're on a shoestring. So why would they care? Because if a patient goes to hospital, they don't pay for the patient going to hospital, right? Should it be the local GP and primary care that pays for that? Is that, well, those people are in primary care and they don't go to primary care. They go to hospital for that. So should it be the hospital? Um, you know, so what, like, but, but is it the hospital that pays? Are we now saying that hospitals will pay money out in the community to stop people coming to hospitals? So it gets very confusing as to who's well, actually going to pick up the bill. Some forward thinking trusted <clears throat> that um, they would, um, they would deploy nurses um recruit nurses and deploy them into local social care because there wasn't the capability and capacity there to stop people getting UTIs to be coming as an emergency and then not be able to be discharged back to a system. Well, that's the other thing. Well, that's the other thing you get, you get, it gets stuck in the system, right? And then that that just clogs it all up. Yeah, it clogs it all. And it made, actually it did make financial sense for those hospitals to pay for that because it increased their capacity to be able to do. I think do now, that. I think now if someone revisited it or, or if does revisit it, because it may be having such an impact on bed blocking, that might make more sense, right? Because the bed Absolutely. blocking is so, is so critical. It's such a critical we've, issue. We've really got to think about the financial flows because in that model, I just described, it made financial sense <laughs> for the hospital pay because they freed up the beds. They could do more activity. They got paid for. We're moving away from, um, a national tariff for payment by service. So that's what we've got to take this leap of faith and say, we are literally, I hate horrible saying, but we're in this together. Yeah. Uh, it's down for all of us to invest, to make sure that, and we we have a plan. We have the, the NHS long-term plan, which yeah. is all about going as far downstream as possible. It includes um, neonatal health, uh, maternal health, health of young people to prevent the, to prevent the point where people prevent the most resource intensive bit of our bit of our, our health and care system which is the accident emergency department um, and, and generally to keep people off of our hospital estate that don't need to be there and technology's got a huge role to play in that and it's also a more sustainable way to deliver health care and guess what what is the probably the biggest burning platform of our of our um, you know of our lifetime for our children's lifetime beyond global pandemics and you know World War Three starting in 
in the Ukraine it is uh, an antimicrobial resistance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's exactly that, isn't it? Yeah, no, of course. And so how, um, what is, I guess, what, what is the mission? What is ABHI's mission or how is it dealing with these much, I mean, really broad, really complex themes? I mean, because any one of these things is just a, an extremely detailed, complicated business in and of itself. So obviously you have your mission, but you're also representing your members. And so how, how do you guys handle that? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we basically communicated recently we've got two two priorities really the growth uh, and regulation and that is growth um of our industry uh, of our companies i don't think there's any there's any uh, we should be embarrassed about that we're an industry representative body but it is also about growing the capacity of health and care systems uh, uh the world over actually to be able to to treat more patients do that more efficiently in all the stuff we've just talked about now how does the technology play that role? How can we deliver more and more care out of hospitals? Diagnostics has got a ma- ma- massive role to play in that. Uh, that We talk a lot about early diagnosis. How can we intervene um, uh, earlier and earlier? Um, and what we're trying to do, isn't it, is help people live healthier lives for longer. There's always going to be that, that huge amount of resource towards the end of life. But how do we extend the number of years you live in a healthy life? Because in many ways, Health and care systems in the developed world have been a victim of their own success, haven't they? The NHS yeah. was was founded partly on the press on the uh, the the, uh, the belief that if you made people healthy, you spend less money on healthcare. Well, that's not right. That's gone the other way, right? And I, I, I and it, well, it's not that spending money on healthcare hasn't made people sicker. That's obviously a silly thing to suggest, but there are more people who are sicker more of the time. The problem is, I mean, people say the NHS has failed. Well, it's not failing. It's doing. It's, it's no, very it's, good at delivering what it was designed to deliver. Yeah, which is to treat people with acute episodes of discrete illness. Yeah. Now we've got populations that we have to treat uh, with multiple morbidities and care for them for for, for decades. Uh, yeah, and, and, and also like it, it's not. It's not. I think saying the NHS is failing is, is so harsh because. First of all, it's just never that simple. But second of all, it's it's a lot of the issues within the system are around very systemic global themes like global lack of doctors, global lack of nurses, global lack of, you know, healthcare advisors or like there's just, you, you know, there's a limit to how much you can deliver. Like you need someone to put a, can- a cannula in someone's hand, for example, just making more cannulas or better cannulas. That's not going to resolve the underlying issue. No, but better candles will help if they're easy. Well, I will, will, I, yeah, stay yeah, there okay. I, I, I give you, I give but, you. But other, but other forms of technology that can uh, that, that, that can develop, and so we talked about. You mentioned pacemaker, actually. Um, so if you look at, um, we were doing some work recently on on this this debate. Does the cost of technology fall over time? Well, it does. In nineteen eighty, let's say a pacemaker probably cost the equivalent of a mini motor part, uh, and yeah. it would be it would it it would be massive. Uh, you'd have to go in and basically you'd have your chest sort open, your ribs fall apart. You'd be implanted in a procedure that uh, that would take uh, several hours. Uh, you'd get sewn up again. You'd be on ICU for 48 hours and then probably an inpatient for um, for, uh, for for a couple of weeks. Now um, you can buy a pacemaker with the with the um, computational power, the functionality and battery longevity, unimaginable back then a couple of hundred pounds similarly yeah. if you look at interventional cardiology uh, again in, in a shorter time period of frame 
um, disease that would, would have been treated in the 1980s with a coronary artery bypass, long hospital stage, hugely procedure times, same profile disease is now being treated by um, a hole in the wrist. Um, you're in and out in the same day. You don't even have to take your trousers off. So that is making the case for technology to, to generate those efficiencies, as well as being able to deliver care in different settings. Um, in nursing homes, you talk a lot about hospital home virtual awards. It's absolutely yeah. what we're going to have to do. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Nagging pain. We at Alka-Cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. Alka-Cells, part of a network of 50 Regenex clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. Alka-Cells, life is more beautiful with less pain. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. The station that makes you feel good. Virtual clinics, virtually outpatient clinics, we're yeah. following. I mean, I just to do that. Yeah, and I, I agree. And, and um, technologies like PopTok exist to allow blood testing to be done anywhere outside of the clinical setting because screening for major diseases has to take place. Steve, you're part of the solution, and that is with, the future. With, Re- with, readily available diagnostic, cheap, reliable diagnostics that you don't, you can buy on the high street. That is the yeah. future. And some companies are are famously in that space, aren't they? Yeah, um, absolutely. So what um, what do you think the major trends are going to be that we need to be aware of that you guys are tracking for the next you know, few years? Um, really interesting question, that, isn't it? So... Um, we talk a lot about technology and all the exciting stuff, but demographic changes in the world, the fact that we, you know, the, we, the stuff we talked about, we're all getting older, there's, we're living with multiple morbidities, means that we're going to continue. A lot of devices that are being used today will still be the mainstream medical treatment. So you look at orthopedics, people uh, are talking about, I've been talking about for many years about regenerative medicine, being, being putting orthopedic surgeons out of business technology there is, 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 is that's still difficult. It's very, very difficult to get those kind of biopharmaceutical agents into large joints. And yeah. before, we, before we get close to that, more and more of us are going to get to the stage where we need use, need big, um, we need uh, big, we need, we need, we need new news, news hips. Uh, more of us will get short-sighted, maybe that cataract should move. So traditional medical devices, I think they're going to remain the uh, mainstay of, um, of, of treatment, but they will be supported by innovation. Uh, particularly um, advances in innovative surgical uh, interventions. We kind of hinted at it just, haven't I, about minimally invasive uh, surgery. Um, we'll, make, we'll shorten procedure times, make it, uh, 
make it um, make it uh, 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 easier, quicker, and safer. And then robotic assisted surgery. Robotic assisted surgery is one of those that I think has moved quicker than I anticipated. So my own experience as a hospital, we a few years ago we we had the first particular brand of robotic surgery in the NHS in our hospital, and it was for cell payers. Um, right. uh, um, people who were prepared to pay didn't want to wait could afford to jump the waiting list. Very quickly, the insurers started paying for it. Once one insurer pays, everyone else pays. And now it's part of a major NA, uh, National Institute of Health Research trial. And that technology is it, the price, the size, and all the all the, all the the barriers to the uh, adoption of robotic-assisted surgery are being uh, moved very, very quickly. Um, and then I think we're a long way off, um, you know, uh, autonomous robotic surgery. But we will yeah. see advances in in virtual reality and augmented reality, which will uh, allow the more routine use of remote surgery. So a kind of hub and spoke model. Um, and alongside that, uh, advances in things like uh, 3D printing, which is, uh, uh, there's some fantastic applications of CD, 3D printing at the moment for surgical planning. So yeah. you, you'll, you'll scan someone and then you'll build a model of, of, of the, of it maybe the, I saw it yeah, very early on in all the hay. So a model of, a, of an organ, a child with um, you know, kidney disease. The surgeons will be able to look and say, okay, this is the approach we need to take place. Of course, devices are coming down uh, all, all the time. Um, and then I think there's this, the one is going to be a real challenge for us all from a regulatory perspective is the, is the convergence of traditional devices, diagnostics, and information technology, but real mainstream information technology. So um, the first thing, I, I did some work in diabetes at the sort of turn of the century. Through an acquisition, I ended up writing a nice submission for um, insulin pumps. These okay, pumps cool. Deliver, deliver your insulin. Um, at that time, so this is 2000, we probably started on that. At that time, uh, and, and it does exist, as a, and it did exist, as well as your insulin pumps, I think it's going to give you insulin, continuous glucose monitors. And there has been the sort of technology to make them talk to each other. So you're describing essentially an artificial pancreas. And yeah. that was always stubbornly about five years away. It remained about five years away. And I think, I think, I could remember, but I think the first kind of versions of that are beginning to get. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think they're coming out. I think they're coming out now, yeah. Except they've been here for years because tax savvy, uh, tech savvy type yeah they hacked it themselves they did it themselves didn't they yeah they've got a, they've got an insulin pump they've got a glucose monitor they're downloading software from open source and they're making and they're doing it itself and they're doing it out with the view of the manufacturers but also regulators yeah so that's no, going to be a really really interesting challenge for all of us for sure uh, and not least in your space Steve. what do you do with yeah them? you know when, when people can see into the results they're getting and how does that where does that direct them how does that direct them and, you know, is, yeah. it, is it beyond the diagnostic? Is it, is it an insulin pump um, connected? Cool. Well, um, Richard, we've run out of time in the show. Wow. That was it. We haven't really talked about anything, have we? No, we did. A, we've covered a lot of ground. So, yeah, that was it. There we go. Um, so, Richard, thank you very much for coming on. Much appreciated. And um, thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks, thanks. Good to speak to you. Yeah, Richard Phillips, Strategy Director at the ABHI. How do people, if people want to find out more about the ABHI, where do they go, Richard? www.abhi.org.uk. Loads of stuff on there. And uh, yeah, we just all, yeah, you'll be able to contact us through that, get a sense of what we're up to. 
always lots of events going on, always lots of stuff going out, news information and uh, reports on some of the meetings we're having. Perfect. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.